Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, but then again, for some of you, wherever you may live in the world, it might already be Friday. But uh, it is hard to believe that um, the episode that we will be discussing in Jack Jewett's The Revolutionary Rider, The Ride to Save Virginia and the American Revolution, this episode is the epilogue. Epilogue meaning the ending, whereas prologue was the introduction. You know, um, this episode marks uh, episode eight of this series. The book that we have uh, discussed, written by Judy Bloodgood Bander, while it's not, um, it, it's not a 300-page book on Jack Jewett, as a matter of fact, the total uh, page count to this book believe it or not, is um, a little over 100 pages, maybe about 105 pages at most. But it's a, um, obviously it's a great read. Um, if I didn't think it was a, a great read, I probably would not have um, uh, shared this uh, series with you all. But I'm sure some of you all are probably wondering, are there any other uh, books out there that um, that focus on this same um, topic? Uh, there is. As a matter of fact, um, I read a book 11 years ago uh, by Michael Cranish called Flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at War. I'll have to admit that I had a uh, toss-up uh, between that book versus the one that, we're, um, that we've been doing here on uh, Jack Jewett. And while uh, Cranish's book does talk about Jack Jewett, uh, Jewett's name is not mentioned until um, until later on in the book when it comes to uh, 1781. I felt it was best to find a book out there dedicated solely to Jack Jewett and to learn more about the man himself. Obviously, this was not uh, an ordinary ride, but I think it's fair to say that we will um, come to learn before this uh, segment is over is that this was a ride that was um, a ride by uh, choice. In other words, it might be fair to say that Jack Jewett didn't have a whole lot of time on his side, but it is fair to say that he made the time to do the right thing. And is it fair to say that by making the right choice with with the uh, small amount of time that he had left, or the ample amount of time, I should say, that by making the choice that he made, that um, he rode the 40 miles from Louisa to Charlottesville to save everyone there was to save, most notably the government. Because if Jack Jewett doesn't make this 40-mile ride, then who's going to do it? Who's going to even think of going the 40 miles or longer? The bottom line is that sometimes um, those who uh, perform heroic um, deeds usually don't get enough time to prepare in advance. And sometimes they are thrown into a lion's den. But it's up to them as individuals as to how they choose to um, exit the lion's den in other words, are they going to sit there and pout and lay, and lay defenseless, or are they going to get up and do something about it? Even if it means, even if there's a chance that this uh, mission itself might not um, succeed, 
because we did learn early on that Jack Jewett, during this 40-mile ride, was convinced that there was a uh, chance of the mission not succeeding. You know, what if Jewett had gotten there, but yet Jefferson was not seen? In other words, I made it to Monticello, but there's no Thomas Jefferson. As, as I've said before from a previous podcast, what if Jefferson's sword had not um, fallen off on the side of his, um, off the side of his uh, body? You know, if that sword hadn't fallen and he would have gone back inside, we would have no Thomas Jefferson. I might be um, sharing some stuff now that, yes, is a little repetitive. I could be sharing stuff that I might mention later on. But I'm trying to give you all a good uh, reminder of where we're at now, given that we're at, into the uh, epilogue of Jack Jewett, Revolutionary Rider, and the Ride to Save Virginia in the American Revolution by Judy Bloodgood Bander. Now, I did mention that other book uh, just a short while ago, uh, Michael Cranish's uh, Flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at War. That is an excellent read. I strongly recommend um, any of you out there uh, whom would like to know more about uh, Virginia in 1781. Um, that is another good read. However, uh, the flight flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at war, also talks uh, a great deal about Jefferson's early years um, and then his time at William and Mary and also uh, time spent in Philadelphia. But nonetheless, uh, I, I feel that we have um, learned a great deal in this series on Mr. Jack Jewett. So, the bigger question is, is how do we end this epilogue? Well, here's how we're going to start. It's Our first lead-off question is going to sound a bit strange, but we all can agree that Jack Jewett um, obviously rode by horseback. So if he's riding on horseback from Louisa to Monticello, he's got to travel roads. I mean, didn't we learn that he took some back roads some trails that were not familiar to Colonel uh, Bannistray Tarleton and his Legion of Dragoons? Yes. So our first lead-off question will be the following. Was there a road in colonial Virginia times that went east to west, as well as west to east, across central Virginia? Do any of you all think that there was a road in colonial Virginia times that went east to west, as well as west to east, uh, across central Virginia. Of course, I should point out that when uh, when we hear of central Virginia, we think of Richmond uh, being Virginia's current capital, uh, capital since 1780. Uh, I also think of um, other places in uh, central Virginia, like Ashland, for example, uh, in Hanover County. There's a Short Pump in Henrico. There's... Um, Believe it or not, Goochland County um, is considered uh, Central Virginia. And even though Charlottesville um, is considered the mountains, um, I don't know if it still is really technically considered Central Virginia, but at one time uh, Albemarle County was. Uh, but Central Virginia, nonetheless, is a very um, large, uh, decent-sized uh, region in Virginia. So the answer to this uh, lead-off question is that, yes, there was a road in uh, colonial Virginia times that went uh, west to east, as well as east to west, uh, throughout central Virginia. Well, what was the name of this road? 
The name of the road, folks, was Three Notched Road. Notched being spelled N-O-T-C-H apostrophe D. The Three Notched Road served as the primary gateway connector from Richmond to the Blue Ridge Mountains region that stretched into Albemarle County, Charlottesville, Thomas Jefferson's estate, Monticello, And Jack Jewett rode part of the way on this road, three-notched road, folks, during his 40-mile ride to save Virginia's government leaders and the revolution itself. Now, how long ago, or rather I should say, how long ago do you think that the road itself was first uh, proposed and first put into play? Do any of you all feel as though three-notched road was um, put into place years before shots were fired around the world? Or do some of you believe that three-notched road was um, was built um, just after shots were fired around the world from April of 1775? The answer is choice A. Uh, this road uh, was constructed, or I should say it was uh, laid out well before uh, shots were fired around the world from April of 1775. Okay, well, was this road first laid out before Jack Jewett was born or after? And remember, Jack Jewett was born in 1754. The answer is choice A. This road was laid out at least um, 20 years before he was born. So, if we want to know exactly what year the, the road itself, as we know to be three-notched road during this time, when it was first uh, proposed, we got to go back to seven, June of 1733. That means that this road was first proposed one year after George Washington was born, and ten years before Thomas Jefferson is born. But, it, but come spring of 1734, Peter Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson's father, became the official surveyor for this road project. Well, Jefferson's father is a very well-known surveyor in Virginia. As a matter of fact, there is a map that you can find um, in uh, gift shops in Colonial Williamsburg. You can find it um, at the Mickey Tavern, and uh, they have a map of it hanging up on display at the Mickey Tavern um, in uh, Charlottesville, which is uh, before uh, getting to uh, Monticello. It's a map that uh, Jefferson's father, along with another fellow surveyor named Joshua Fry, um, devised of Virginia. And uh, when you look at the map, it, it tells you a lot about what Virginia looked like during the... Um, 18th century, or at the time in which uh, Jefferson and Fry um, designed the map. You know, we have to keep in mind that, you know, that not all the counties that we know of today, you know, yes, when we look at uh, on a map of a particular county and its size, we should be reminded that the county that you might live in, say, I, I live in Chesterfield, Chesterfield would not have been on um a map at one time in Virginia, Chesterfield County wasn't formed until 1749. But um, but if you you know just look at the maps carefully, you do have to be reminded that sometimes counties were much bigger than they are today. 
and that there were counties then that no longer exist today. Uh, there was a county up until 1964 in uh, the Virginia Beach area known as Princess Anne County. There still is a high school there named Princess Anne High School, and the only reason I know about it is because uh, my father, uh, being a native of Lynchburg, uh, which was established in 1786 as a uh, port um city for uh, shipping uh, tobacco along the James River, or uh, hogshead barrels of tobacco, I should say. My father went to E.C. Glass High School, uh, which was named um, in honor of the uh, Glass family in Lynchburg, who um, who uh, were very powerful in politics. Uh, one of their family members was uh, Carter Glass, who was responsible for uh, introducing legislation in 1913 that uh, went into law uh, known as the Federal Reserve Act. So our modern-day Federal Reserve is um, attributed to Carter Glass, as well as FDIC, uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which came into play uh, right around the time when Franklin uh, Roosevelt uh, became president. So uh, E.C. Glass was a big rival of Princess Anne, and so that's how, um, my, uh, that's how I made the connection through my dad. But yes, at one time there was a county known as Princess Anne, and it's uh, no longer around as a county, uh, but it's just part of a uh, greater Virginia Beach uh, jurisdiction. So we should be reminded nonetheless on maps that uh, whatever we may see that, say, dates back to 1750, say county or uh, city-wise, those cities or town names um, have been replaced uh, by... Um, just for various reasons. So yes, Thomas Jefferson's father was um, a very well-to-do surveyor, and uh, he did work for uh, the Randolphs, and and that's how uh, he would eventually marry uh, Jefferson's mother, who was a Randolph, uh, Jane Randolph Jefferson. So um, this project, or I should say rather the uh, the new road was to go from uh, the mountains down the ridge between the Ravana and the South Anna Rivers, and the road would follow an Indian trail. Listen to this, folks. This road's going to follow an Indian trail. Why would it follow an Indian trail? Because in earlier times, roads would get cut or opened more than once. Think about it, folks. If, if a road gets open more than once, should that serve as an indicator for future travel goers as to where they should uh, turn in terms of going left or right or maybe going straight? Think about it. We have no such thing as OnStar back then, folks. We don't have anything like GPS. We don't have um, navigation with a phone. Of course, a telephone's not going to come around. The first telephone won't be introduced until 1876, 100 years after declaring our separation from England. So these, um, what do you call it, um, these openings in the roads of early days were what helped people um, who were traveling along, along them know where to go in terms of following the routes, short and long term. So, so yes, in earlier times, a road would get cut or opened more than once, but all of this was done before, before advancements came along, like, say, adding permanent dirt surface 
over existing over an existing travel mark. So in other words, in other words, we don't have anything like asphalt back in the 18th century. Uh, we don't have any um, we don't have any kind of sophisticated roads like we have now on interstates, for example. Now, 1745 would mark the official year for which the three-notched road opened for travel, east to west and vice versa. So why is this road, why was this road called three-notched road? All right, well, the road itself had three notches, and what are notches? They are mile markings. And in, in this instance, you know, like, for example, when you're traveling on the road, it will say mile marker 12 uh, or say exit 12. Well, back then we didn't have any signs that said exit 12 for for such and such. But the earliest um, present day mile markings along Three Notched Road could be found at tr on trees, and and the they would have been in consistent intervals or stages running west to east. Interesting to think that there would be a um, a mile marking on a tree. But hey, if it worked back then, more power uh, to those uh, people who were smart enough to um, to figure out what was best for uh, travelers. So, for example, the first of the um, notches was mile number 12, which was closer to Shadwell, which was at the bottom of the mountain from Monticello. And for those of you who don't know uh, Shadwell... That was where Thomas Jefferson was born in 1743. Some of you are probably wondering, is that home even still there to visit? Well, the only thing that's left at Shadwell is the foundation, the, uh, the general uh, bottom foundation of the home. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson was about 27 years old, Shadwell caught on fire. There was more than one... Um, piece of uh, property at Shadwell. There were other dwellings, but the main dwelling uh, caught on fire, and Thomas Jefferson lost many of his uh, fundamental belongings. And in this case, what I mean by belongings is his many of his books, uh, many of his uh, writings. Jefferson was very uh, big on uh, safeguarding valuables, but sadly, um, you know, sometimes you can't control what a fire will take. And sadly, that's what happened. So Shadwell, however, uh, got its name from a parish in London, England, where Jefferson's mother hailed from, uh, being uh, Jane Randolph Jefferson. So uh, Peter Jefferson, being Jefferson's father, the surveyor, he named the home Shadwell in honor of, where, of the uh, parish where Jefferson's mother hailed from in England. So uh, Shadwell, you can find um, when you're on 64, depending on how you're going to get to Monticello, if you're on 64, uh, the egg, there's an exit sign that, um, one of the exit signs for Charlottesville, I want to say is exit 124, and it does um, list uh, Shadwell. So if you are, if you ever, whenever you see a mile marker on 64 that says Shadwell, uh, think of Thomas Jefferson's, um, think of uh, Thomas, you can think of Thomas Jefferson, but think of, uh, that, think of that home is where he was uh, born. He wasn't born at Monticello, but he was born at Shadwell. But the property uh, where Monticello is at 
uh, Jefferson's father owned. So, you know, it's not like Jefferson woke up one morning and said, hey, I'm going to build a home right on that mountaintop right there. That, that property, all that land uh, owned, uh, was uh, jointly owned by the Jeffersons and the Randolphs. So um, then we go to uh, mile numbers uh, 36 and 40, which were closer to the Goochland County Courthouse. You know, I have mentioned Goochland County a few times from previous uh, podcasts. And um, I think what's, and some of you are probably wondering, how did Goochland County get its name? Well, it was named after a governor uh, who served as governor of Virginia um, for an extensive period of time from, from 1727 to 1749. I, I believe that's how long he served uh, being uh, William Gooch who was uh, governor of Virginia, and he was a, a statesman in the uh, what was then been the Virginia House of Burgesses. But that's for whom uh, Goochland County is named after. So you have these mile numbers of uh, 36 and 40 that are closer to the Goochland County Courthouse. Now, Three, three Notched Road was named Three Notched, and in, pre- and in the present day, it's now Three Chopped Road. And whenever I go by Three Chopped Road, um, the one building, or the one, um, I guess you could say a building. It's not a business building, but it's a um, the Country Club of Virginia, otherwise known as the CCV. It's on Three Chopped Road, and whenever I uh, go by Three Chopped um, at times and I see the Country Club from a distance, uh, I definitely know that I'm, um, I, I could say now that I'm driving in, in an area that was once referred to as Three Notched. But now it's uh, considered to be uh, three chopped. But the reason why it was called uh, Three Notched Road in its time was because of the mileage markings. Wherever people traveled, they knew where their destinations were taking them. And Three Notched Road did remain in place until the start of the 1930s. So if you think about it, here we are in the year 2022. And if Three Notched Road... um, remained that name until the start of the 1930s we're not even that's not even close to 100 years old just yet it's just a little over 90 years ago and how ironic where i live in midlothian uh, chesterfield county uh, coal mining midlothian was a, a prosperous coal mining town and and stayed that way up until the start of the uh, 1930s so sometimes when we think um, history is old when you think back on it now, 90-some years later, no, it really was not that long ago when either a particular road um, existed by a different name or that you know a place like Midlothian, where I live, was actually a coal mining um, town. So for Three Notched Road, it remained in place until the start of the 1930s when it was replaced by U.S. Route 250, which improved upon the existing road. Now, 250, I know... Um, can take you um, as far west in Virginia as uh, Charlottesville, Stanton, um, Harrisonburg. Uh, 250 and 33 um, are joining um, roads. And 250 does go into West Virginia, uh, but it also goes um, into um, a state that was once considered to be part of Virginia, uh, how about Ohio? 
and believe it or not, folks, 250 run goes all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Sandusky, Ohio. Does anybody know, know exactly where Sandusky is located in Ohio? Is it located uh, north of Columbus? Is it, um, okay, for starters, is it located north of Columbus, uh, which is Ohio's capital? The answer is yes, Sandusky is north of Columbus. Let me ask you this, does Sandusky border one of the Great Lakes? Yes. Which of, the two, which of these two Great Lakes does Sandusky border? Lake Erie or Lake Ontario? The answer is choice A, Lake Erie. Sandusky is uh, closer, uh, it's east of Toledo. Uh, Toledo's in the northwest part of Ohio, uh, not far from the Ohio-Michigan line. As a matter of fact, Toledo's closer to Detroit. But if you look at the, uh, the map of uh, northern Ohio, uh, which uh, northern, northeastern, northwest Ohio, they all kind of converge together because uh, Lake Erie uh, is, is near Toledo. Lake Erie touches Cleveland. But Cleveland is northeast Ohio, Toledo is northwest, and then you have Sandusky in northern Ohio. So Sandusky uh, is really uh, in between, in a sense, it's the central, north-central part, the north-central most city in Ohio that is um, smack dab in the middle with Toledo to the northwest and uh, Cleveland to the northeast. So yes, uh, believe it or not, folks, US 250 runs from Sandusky, Ohio to Richmond, and 250 does meet up with present-day Interstate 64 in Virginia. And believe it or not, Interstate 64 goes all the way to St. Louis, Missouri. But um, when 250 goes into Richmond, that part of 250 is known as Broad Street. And why is Broad Street known as Broad Street? Because Broad Street, it turns out, connects, um, it, it's, a lar it's a long road, about a 15-mile road, stretch of road, that connects many historic venues in downtown Richmond. And as for Three Notched Road, the original route of this road can be found at West Main and part of University Avenue in Charlottesville, the University of Virginia. So Three Notched Road may not have its name anymore. And, of course, here in Richmond we have Three Chopped Road, but you can still find uh, traces of the old three not of part of the of the old three notched road route in Charlottesville. So thank heavens this road um, was present during uh, the time that Jack Jewett made his uh, forty mile ride because he used part of the road. He took advantage of a road that Banastray Tarleton and his British Dragoon forces didn't even think of using. But then again. They were in their own world with the mission to capture the government, but yet Jewett knew these back roads that most people didn't know, and that's how he outsmarted the enemy. Is it fair to say that even Jewett himself was like the equivalent of a Francis Marion, uh, the Swamp Fox from South Carolina? I think it's possible. Uh, Marion was very elusive. No matter how far the British chased him into the um, forests, as one British officer said, I, I just can no longer chase that fox even as we get into the swamps. He is that elusive. Well, of course, Banastray Tarleton didn't know who Jack Jewett was. 
And perhaps that might have been a good thing, because if Tarleton knew that someone was trying to outmaneuver him, Tarleton would have probably seen to it that that man trying to uh, save the government be captured. So Rhodes, even in the 18th century time, folks, played a vital use, especially when it came to uh, a matter of life and death in terms of saving your government and uh, a revolutionary movement like the one that we're um, still trying to um, eventually pull off in terms of um, victory in 1781. I mean, we're in the sixth year of this war, and both sides are beginning to show signs of war fatigue. They're beginning to show signs of just being strained financially and emotionally. Some are even wondering if there should be reconciliation or some kind of compromise reconciliation. I don't know if I would tell that to a whole lot of people. But here's another good question we ought to think about. For all that Jack Jewett has done, did the General Assembly honor him during their time spent in Stanton between June the 7th and the 23rd of 1781. You better believe they did. The General Assembly honored him on uh, June 15th by issuing a resolution for his brave acts of heroism in riding 40 miles west to Charlottesville, where he saved the Virginia government from complete annihilation, including its leaders, whom otherwise would have become prisoners, taken away overseas to die an inhumane way. Think, remember, folks, from the previous podcast, had uh, Tarleton and his men captured Thomas Jefferson? Not only would Tarleton's uh, status been um, enhanced, but Cornwallis's status would have been enhanced. And yes, the British Treasury was already um, experiencing more deficits than surpluses with regards to financing the war, what do you think would have been the biggest surplus for the British government? Capturing revolutionary leaders like Jefferson, Patrick Henry, uh, Benjamin Harrison V, Richard Henry Lee, John Tyler Sr., Daniel Boone, who was captured at one night and then released the next. But, you know, the more uh, revolutionary leaders you capture, the greater the ransom would be. Then then the greater the likelihood that the British would turn around and say, hey, look, if you want any kind of reconciliation, you're going to have to return to be, being a subject of the crown. And by doing so, then we'll release your leaders, but you all will have to take some kind of allegiance oath that you will not take up arms against the crown. So yes, thank goodness that uh, the General Assembly was kind enough to realize that, hey, we need to do something for Mr. Jewett because he stuck his neck out for us. Because there were some of them who didn't believe or didn't take his warnings very seriously at first. They thought the guy was nuts, but he kept on pressing until he was blue in the face to say, hey, look, you need to leave. Because if you don't leave now, you will get captured by the British, and you will be considered not only an enemy, but you will be taken back to England, tried for um, of all offenses known for taking up arms against the crown. You Once you're found guilty, you will uh, die uh, death by hanging. So, it's uh, thank goodness that uh, we have someone who arrived at the right place, right time to pull off the... Um, greatest act of uh, courage that um, Virginia needed during this time of, of um, 
of insurmountable um, crisis, during this time of an insurmountable crisis. Now, I guess the next part we ought to find out is this. Did Jack Jewett um, stay in Virginia after um, the surrender at Yorktown? In 1782, he moved from Louisa County to go west into present-day Kentucky, where he served in the Virginia General Assembly by representing Mercer County. And on August 20th of 1784, two years later, he married Sally Robards Harris, whom came from a well-to-do family, and together they had 12 children. I know 12 children seems like a lot, but we have to remember that in those days, life expectancy was not very high amongst uh, children. And so if, if a couple had 12 children, their hopes would have been that maybe six or seven of those children made it to adulthood. Now, uh, Jack Jewett did become the first delegate to the Virginia legislature from the Kentucky Territory in 1787. And in 1790, he was elected to the Virginia legislature from Mercer County. He worked tirelessly to see the Kentucky Territory eventually become its own separate state. And on June the 1st of 1792, Kentucky was admitted into the Union as America's 15th state. So, had it not been for Jack Jewett, I do believe, yes, somebody else would have uh, helped um, spark the movement for getting uh, Kentucky into the Union. But I, I, I see it very fitting that someone who uh, saved uh, Virginia and saved the... Um, and kept the uh, flames from being extinguished for the greater revolutionary movement itself, be the one to um, see to it that uh, the territory that he was living in would eventually become its own separate state, which was the case on June the 1st of 1792. And Jack Jewett uh, once again represented Mercer County in the Kentucky legislature uh, that same year of 1792. Now, three years later, in 1795, the Jewett family moved to Woodford County. And whom was Woodford County named after? Uh, we learned about this from the previous podcast. It was named after uh, Virginia General William Woodford, who sadly lost his life uh, aboard a prison ship in uh, New York, where he died in, in 1780. And how fitting that in uh, Kentucky, as well as in Illinois, that there are uh, counties uh, being uh, Woodford County. So that's where the Jewett family moves in 1795, and he represents Woodford County uh, from 1795 to 1797. He became a member of the Kentucky Society. Does anybody know what the Kentucky Society was all about? I don't believe most of you would know, but that's okay. But I, I learned about it through reading the book, and uh, this is what it's about. The Kentucky Society focused on... Um, on breeding, on the breeding of imported cattle and horses from England. But why is that important? Well, I mean, people do need horses to get around from point A to point B. And cattle, you know, think about this, folks. People, you know, they do need to eat and they need to be able to, um, you know, you know, we get meat from cattle and we also get, um, you know, we get milk from cows. 
but it's more than just meat from the uh, cattle. It, it's other things too. But it's not just the uh, the uh, the horses and the cattle themselves. But uh, for Jewett, the Kentucky Society focuses on how um, breeding of uh, various uh, cattle and horses that come from England will would adapt uh, to uh, America or to uh, American um, wilderness settings. But over time, Jewett's involvement in this society helped lead to. A, a grand event that still takes place uh, every uh, May, the Kentucky Derby. So whenever we watch the Kentucky Derby on television, there's somebody we ought to thank. We ought to thank Jack Jewett because of his um, F tireless um, involvement in the Kentucky society. And uh, Jewett's... Um, in 1797, he built a fine home, which still stands today. And it was uh, about 44 years ago in October of 1978 that Jewett's home, um, after being officially restored, it opened to the public. His home is in Wood. This home is in Woodford County, and it remains the only historic house museum in the country, and is listed on the National Register of uh, Historic Places. It's fair to say that Jack Jewett's uh, legacy, after 241 years, has not been forgotten. However, I do think that some of us probably did not know anything about Jack Jewett until this podcast series. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, sometimes we do forget that, uh, that there obviously were people during the American Revolution whose stories have not always been told to the greatest um, extent. But it's all, always good to be able to um, take the time to learn those stories and realize that, hey, not everyone has had to be like George Washington. Not everyone uh, had to be like a Thomas Jefferson. Even uh, someone from the uh, lower tier or lower middle tier, um, not so much status, but lower middle tier involvement in the greater um, conflict for separation from England still um, did something that was significant, and if the story has been forgotten for a long time, uh, one should uh, take the time to be able to learn about that um, matter and perhaps tell uh, tell a story like what's being done now with uh, Mr. Jewett. Did any of Jack Jewett's children achieve fame? Yes. Um, one of his sons, named Matthew Harris Jewett, he started out being a lawyer, but it turns out that uh, being a lawyer, he realized wasn't the right fit for him, and it kind of um, it kind of disappointed um, his father. But his father got over it, and Matthew went about becoming a portrait painter. He studied under Gilbert Stewart, who was a well-known artist of his day. As a matter of fact, Gilbert Stewart had done um, portraits of uh, famous people like, you know, George Washington, Jefferson, to, uh, to name a few. But um, but for Matthew uh, Harris Jewett, his works, many of his works still exist, about over 300 of them still exist, believe it or not ranging from portraits of Thomas Jefferson, the Marquis de Lafayette, George Rogers Clark, to name a few. 
and if and if one of his own children had achieved a significant fame, how about a grandson of Jack Jewett's um, named James Edward Jewett, who was a lieutenant commander in the U in the United States Navy? He was stationed on the U.S. on the U.S.N. Metacomet at the Battle of Mobile Bay during the Civil War, uh, Mobile, Alabama. Now, um, many of you all are wondering. Okay, Jack Jewett was born in 1754, and then of course, you know, some of our other, some other uh, well-known men like Thomas Jefferson. He was born in 1743, so that means Jefferson would have been about 11 years older than Jewett. How old did Jack Jewett live to be? Well, um, did he live to be 80 years old? Did he live to be 75? Or did he live to be 67? The answer is choice C. He lived to be 67. He died on March the 1st in 1822 in Bath County, Kentucky, either at his farm of uh, Peeled Oak, or at the home of his daughter, Elizabeth Lewis Jewett Hayden. Okay, he dies on March 1st of 1822. Uh, James Monroe is uh, president of the United States at, at that time. We are just four years shy of celebrating... Uh, um, Amer America is four years shy of celebrating her half-centennial, meaning her 50th... Um, anniversary from separation from England. By the time Jack Jewett dies, um, it's been 41 years or close to 41 years since the uh, since Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown. So Jack Jewett has he's lived to see um, he's lived to see a constitution be uh, created uh, from 1787. He's lived to see um, George Washington become our nation's first president. He even lived to see a second war for independence from the War of 1812. Jack Jewett has also seen a dynasty of three consecutive presidents from Virginia do something that has never happened to this that has never happened again in America's history. In other words, Jack Jewett lived long enough to see um, four of America's first five presidents come from Virginia. So Jack Jewett uh, was 67 years old at the time of his death. He is buried in Bath County at Peeled, at the Peeled Oak Farm estate of his. He was buried in an unmarked grave for a period of for a good period of time, but it wasn't until the 20th century that his um, unmarked gravesite was located. He was reinterred, or I should say, reburied at Tan Yard Graveyard, which is where many Revolutionary War veterans got placed to rest. In 1940, the Virginia General Assembly, hard to believe that was 82 years ago. So 82 years ago. On um, June the 4th, 1940, the Virginia General Assembly passed a measure making June 4th of each year Jack Jewett Day. Kentucky, two years later in 1942, their state legislature followed the same suit. 
All right, well, here's our final question for this uh, podcast series on Jack Jewett, revolutionary rider, the rider to the ride to save Virginia and the American Revolution. This is a very, very um, powerful one that we need to um, hear and try to decipher in terms of what could be the best answer to the question that will be about to be addressed. Why is Jack Jewett's 40-mile ride still to this day important? Okay, why does it matter still to this day, folks? Well, for one, this ride wasn't planned in advance. In other words, Jack Jewett may not have had the same kind of, uh, he didn't have anything close to the same uh, courier network rider, dispatch rider um, team or assembly that Paul Revere had uh, up in Massachusetts. And where they were successfully able to warn people from all different directions of the uh, British advancement and how they would need to go about preparing um, if the British were to um, encroach upon their um, surroundings. So yes, this uh, the Jack Jewett's ride was not planned in advance, but yet it happened by chance. As Jewett himself learned of the British forces advancing westward to Charlottesville, while in Louisa uh, on June the 3rd. Jack Jewett was on borrowed time and therefore had to take matters into his own hands by going the extra mile to warn the Virginia, to warn uh, Virginia's government officials of what lied ahead. Without this ride, Governor Thomas Jefferson and everyone else in the state in terms of uh, government leaders from Jefferson on down to the Virginia General Assembly. Although, yes, there were some Virginia General Assembly members who were captured, but more of them would have been captured, obviously uh, ones whose names I mentioned earlier. Without Jack Jewett's ride, uh, Governor Jefferson and everyone else in the state government would have become prized enemy possessions. Jefferson's capture would would have meant the following, folks. A lot of things. If Thomas Jefferson had been captured, we already know for one, he would have been taken back to England. He would have been tried, found guilty, and uh, would have been uh, executed for um, for committing um, treasonous acts against the crown. And yes, uh, other. Uh, members of the Virginia General Assembly would have met the same fate. But if Thomas Jefferson had been um, captured, is it fair to say that, that the United States, as we know today, might not even exist? It's a possibility. Well, how so? Well, uh, there probably would not have been a Louisiana Purchase. Remember when Jefferson uh, became president? In the early years of his presidency, uh, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, what did that exactly do, folks? It doubled the size of the United States. And if Jefferson had been captured, yes, there would have been no Louisiana Purchase acquisition from France, and, there, and it also would have meant no Lewis and Clark expedition out to the Pacific coast. Had Jefferson been captured... I don't believe that his uh, Virginia statutes for religious freedom would have been a um, dream come true. Now, Jefferson was in France when uh, James Madison reintroduced the Virginia statutes for religious freedom. Uh, 
which for one sought to um, abolish the Anglican Church, or I should say the Church of England, as being the um, official uh, church as well as the official religion in Virginia. For Jefferson, um, there are three things on his tombstone that he wished to be remembered for, and they still stand on his tombstone. One of them is uh, the founder, uh, the author of the Declaration of Independence. The second is the founding father uh, for the for the Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedoms. So we think of religious freedom, folks. We need to thank Thomas Jefferson. After all, it was him who realized that that in order for a um, for a state to um, thrive, one of the things that it must do is not. One of the things that must happen is that there there has to be a separation of church and state. The church cannot be telling the state how to govern, and the state cannot be telling the church how to go about conducting its sermons on behalf of the congregation or what kind of Bible to use when preaching uh, the gospel to the congregations. So whenever we think of separation of church and state, folks, we have Thomas Jefferson to thank. The Declaration of Independence would have lost its irrelevance, would have lost its relevance. You know, it was a phenomenal piece of work. Jefferson, you know, is its chief author. And if Jefferson's captured, is it fair to say that the Declaration of Independence has no meaning? And the lives of all those other men who signed the document, if Jefferson's captured, it's probably fair to say that everyone else who signed who is still alive would have to hang separately as well. Trying times, to say the least. But the last one is the most important of them all, folks. And for those of you who attend the University of Virginia and are listening to this, or just alums of the University of Virginia, I want you to pay very careful attention. Had Thomas Jefferson been captured by the British, there would be... um, there would be no University of Virginia. Okay? That was the third and final thing Thomas Jefferson wished to be remembered for as the founding father of the University of Virginia. So whenever you walk the grounds, yes, at the University of Virginia, think of Thomas Jefferson. Well, I mean, yes, for starters, by all means, think of Thomas Jefferson, but just be reminded of the fact that had it not been for Jack Jewett's ride, there would be there would be no University of Virginia. I don't know who would have even laid out the University of Virginia. Somebody else would have, but it wouldn't have been as um, but that he it's fair to say that that individual probably may not have had shared the same ideals that Thomas Jefferson did. So that to me folks is why Jack Jewett's ride is so to this day is important. It's not so much that the ride he took, but the ride it's not so much a 40-mile ride that he took. It was the fact that this was a ride that was not planned in advance. It happened by chance, and he was on borrowed time, but yet he still made the ultimate sacrifice and prevailed in the end, even when it looked dark, bleak. He even knew that there was a chance by the time he got to Monticello that he might not, may not succeed, but he did. And because of Jack Jewett's um, ride, folks, all of these other things were able to come about under Thomas Jefferson's tutelage, or under his uh, pres under his um, presence. The Louisiana Purchase, 
and while yes, being ambassador to France, James Madison helped um, reinvigorate the uh, re religious uh, freedom reforms in Virginia, which did make it a reality to have greater uh, religious toleration, where Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Quakers, Unitarians, people from all other religious faiths could practice their faith freely without having to be subjected to cruel and unusual punishments, a.k.a., in this case, religious persecution, all because they did not, all because they um, didn't practice the same faith as someone who was an Anglican or what we think of now as an Episcopalian. And yes, the University of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson did die knowing that the University of Virginia wasn't going to make it when he died in 1826. But if he were alive today, he would, he would just be in awe of knowing just how far the University of Virginia has come since the time the first students arrived on the grounds in 1825. And of course, those students that came were not the students he envisioned. They were scions of privilege. They weren't there for an education, folks. They were there for all things opposite, which I will have to say that for the first 25 years of the University of Virginia's existence were very, very, uh, they were very tough times. But if I were to talk about something like that, that would have to be for a whole other podcast series. But the bottom line is that uh, without Jack Jewett's ride, none of this is possible. None of this is possible going forward in the future, not just for Virginia, but for America. And had it not been for Jewett's ride, who's to say that Yorktown would have uh, prevailed? Who's to say that we would have had an, uh, enough strong leadership to have... Um, to have, uh, what do you call it, blocked Cornwallis and his men from from exiting and exiting and um, entering the Chesapeake Bay to return back to England. Who's to say that we would have been able to have successfully um, instituted um, blockades that uh, would have kept uh, those from the north coming into the south? And most of all, who's to say that the French would have wanted to have remained as our allies had men like Thomas Jefferson and other prominent statesmen of Virginia, like Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, just to name a few, who would have ended up getting captured and being sent back to England. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, thank you for listening um, to this series, and um, I plan on trying to get back to start another season here soon, but the bigger question is going to be, what topic do we discuss next? But I will tell you this. Whatever topic I do discuss next, it will be relevant like all the other ones. Thank you for your time as always, and uh, wherever you all may live in the world, stay safe, and uh, thank you once again.